Well, as you can tell from all the songs and all the scriptures, we're talking today about being afraid and what do you do when you're feeling afraid or fearful, and, and hopefully this next scripture and story will speak to it. But first, let me begin by saying, we're living in challenging times. Anybody notice? For reasons I don't need to list because we all hear about them every day. And beyond the larger scale, more national or global reasons why people are afraid, fearful, worried, stressed, or anxious, we all have more personal reasons. Some of you may be fearing physical illness or diminishment and, or even death or the death of a loved one. Some of you are concerned about finances and employment and just continuing to make it. Some of you are worried about aging parents, while others on the other side are worried about the world in which you're raising your children or the kind of world we're going to leave to our grandchildren. So many people are living in the grip of fear today, and we see it in the anger, the short-temperedness, the irrationality, the violence, and the lack of just kindness, compassion, and empathy that are on display every day. And you need wisdom to recognize that there are some people and larger entities even that want you to live in fear because it gives them power or makes them more money. And with the relentless 24-hour media cycle that we live with, there can be a tendency to think, boy, no one's ever gone through difficult times like we have. But one of the benefits of living a long time is that hopefully you gain some perspective. And part of that perspective is that you realize it's important not to become overconfident in good times or overly dismayed or discouraged or frightened in tough times. Today's scripture from 2 Kings, and for those of you who may be here for the first time or watching online for the first time, we're journeying through the books of the Bible, and so we're up to 2 Kings. And in this story, it's a story about the prophet Elisha, and he's living in a difficult time. It's a time of war, and the story is about fear. Almost every single character you're going to hear in this scripture is afraid for one reason, or another. Listen to 2 Kings chapter 8, chapter 6, beginning at verse 8. Once, when the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he took counsel with his officers. He said, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, that's Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Take care not to pass this place, because the Arameans are going down there. And the king of Israel sent word to the place of which the man of God spoke. More than once or twice he warned such a place so that it was on the alert. The mind of the king of Aram was greatly perturbed because of this. He called his officers and said to them, Now tell me, who among us sides with the king of Israel? Then one of his officers said, No one, my lord king. It is Elisha the prophet in Israel, who tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedchamber. He said, go and find where he is, and I will send and seize him. He was told, he is in Dothan. 
So he sent horses and chariots there and a great army. They came by night and surrounded the city. When an attendant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. His servant said, alas, master, what shall we do? He replied, do not be afraid, for there are more with us than there are with them. Then Elijah prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the servant and he saw the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When the Arameans came down against him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, please, with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elijah had asked. Elijah said to them, This is not the way. This is not the city. Follow me and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elijah said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they may see. The Lord opened their eyes and they saw that they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, Father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He answered, no. Did you capture with your sword and your bow those whom you want to kill? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and let them go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. After they ate and drank, he sent them on their way and they went to their master and the Arameans no longer came raiding into the land of Israel. This is just a great Bible story. The story begins in a time of violence and hostility. Two neighboring nations with rival political, economic, and religious claims are fighting over the same land. Sadly, Aram, now known as Syria, is still in some level of conflict with Israel over the Golan Heights some 2,700 years later. Unbelievable. So the story begins by telling us it's a time of war. Once when the king of Aram was at war with Israel and living in a time of war is frightening no matter how powerful or how powerless one is. And every single person in this story is afraid except for the prophet Elisha. And as I talk about each one of them, I would encourage you to just think about which one of these people, or maybe more than one, who do you identify with the most in the story? So we start with the king of the Arameans, who we meet first, and he's afraid because his identity is based on his position. His identity is based on his position as king. And he's fearful that someone's trying to undermine his authority or overthrow him because all his military moves are being made known to the Israelites so he's not able to ambush them. And he thinks someone on his staff is a traitor giving away military secrets to Israel. So he interrogates the office and the staff, brings them in. 
Who among us sides with the king of Israel? And you pretty much know the next thing's going to be, once I know who it is, it's off with their head. And just like spy satellites today give an advantage to a nation seeing what's going on in other places, the Israelites have a spiritual spy satellite. And that's the prophet Elisha. And when the king learns that Elisha's the problem, he orders his capture. Well, like the king, sometimes our identity can be so wrapped up in what we do rather than who we are or whose we are. And any perceived threat to our position, our job, our authority, our leadership can be considered a personal attack, and it's got to be met with intimidation and anger and aggression. It's hard. Who are we apart from what we do, what our position is? For example, the fear of not being able to find or keep a job that pays a livable wage. Who am I without that? Losing a job in a changing economy, even making the transition from working for many, many years, for most of our life, to retirement. These are all moments when our identity can be threatened. Because for much of our life, our identity is wrapped up in what we do rather than who we are or whose we are. Both kings are in a position of power, but they're both living in fear. The king of Israel is afraid because he has a hostile neighbor with bad intentions and a seemingly superior force. And Israel's enemy, we're told, is conducting raids and the king of Israel is apparently powerless to stop this from going on. And if he can't show greater resolve or effectiveness, he may be eliminated by his own people. And those of you who have been reading your way through the Bible uh, know that ineffective kings don't, you know, their life insurance premiums are brutal. The long-term future for defeated kings isn't so good either. So some of us may identify with the king of Israel because when we look at our future like this king, he's looking at three possible futures, two of which are really bad. So the odds don't seem to be in his favor. And his only hope is a solitary man of God who gives him better reconnaissance than his military. Now, if you're a practical, political person, this is not an enviable position to be in. So you have... Two men in powerful positions, two kings, they're both afraid. One because his sense of self comes from his position, the other because he's under attack and has difficulty envisioning a secure future. Some of us may feel that way. The next person we meet is Elisha's servant. He's also afraid. Why is he afraid? (laughs) He's afraid because he thinks he and his master are dead men. I mean, can you imagine getting up, picturing this servant, walking out early in the morning to go pick up his latest copy of the Dothan Times and looking through still sleepy eyes and seeing an entire city surrounded by a hostile army with chariots and horses. And the attendant of the man of God, we're told, is frightened and he wakes Elijah with the question, alas! What shall we do? And he's frightened because as far as he can see, they are surrounded, outnumbered, and without resources. There's no way they can send for help. There's no way out of the city. There's no escape. There's no hope. I think many people today 
feel a little like Elisha's servant. The problems around us seem to be closing in. The numbers aren't favorable. And we appear to lack the resources, the courage, the will, the faith to do what needs to be done. We look out on the horizon in the morning beyond our own immediate circumstances and trouble seems to be encroaching on every side. Trouble in large forms that we seem powerless to stop. I mean, how do we counter the growing reach of violence, the changes in the environment, millions around the world living in abject poverty, and the seemingly never-ending conflict among peoples and nations? We look around like the servant Elijah, and we just throw up our hands and say, Alas, what shall we do? We feel frightened, outnumbered, and without resources. And we wonder what one person can do. And yet the answer, according to this scripture, is quite a bit. The prophet Elijah shows us that an individual with courage and faith in God can make a tremendous difference, even in the face of seemingly overwhelming difficulties. Elijah is the only person in this story who's not afraid. And he's not frightened because, and this is the key part, if you forget everything else I say this morning, please remember this. He's the only person in the story who is defined by his relationship with God rather than his position, his job, or his relationship with someone else. You hear that? Everyone else, it's the king. What's a king? A king rules over people. It's a servant. It's a soldier. They all, Elijah is the man of God. He's defined by who he belongs to. What a difference it makes to have our identity anchored, not in what we do, not in our connection with other people necessarily, but anchored in our relationship with God. And in one of the beautiful statements in Scripture, Elijah attempts to reassure his servant by saying to him, don't be afraid, for there are more with us than there are with them. One of my favorite sayings by Robert Louis Stevenson is, keep your fears to yourself, but share your courage with others. And that's exactly what Elijah does. And then Elijah prays that God will enable his servant to see the spiritual resources that are around him. And Elijah prays, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opens his eyes and he sees, a servant sees all around them the hill surrounded with horses and chariots of fire and the stunned servant looks around and says holy smokes or something like that probably <laughs> and as the Arameans move in to capture Elijah he prays a second time strike this people please with blindness and I personally like the fact that when Elijah prays he says please you know, never hurts to be courteous and polite when we pray. You know, there's a lot of people praying, God, give me this, give me that. Maybe because he said please and went to the front of the line. I don't know. <laughs> but Elijah then approaches the now suddenly disoriented raiders. He says, oh, man, guys, you're so lost. You're not even in the right city. Follow me. I'll take you to where you want to go and lead you right to the man you're looking for. And they follow him along. They take a 10-mile hike, which was nothing in those days. They walk 10 miles down to the southwest, right into the city of Samaria, the capital of Israel, where the king resides. 
And then Elijah prays a third time, and the Aramean soldier's sight is restored. And when it is, now they're fearful. Because they look around and they realize, oh no, we are in the capital city of our enemy, and now we are totally surrounded. The ambushers have been ambushed. The king of Israel, he's still frightened. He's terrified because now there's a raiding party of his enemy right in the center of his capital city. Yet it's an opportunity for him to crush a foe. So he says to Elijah, Father, shall I kill him? Shall I kill him? Because that's often what is done to enemies. How do you respond when you finally get an advantage or an edge over someone who has been hurting or harming or bugging you? There can be a great temptation to say internally, now it's my turn. And we can do this in subtle ways all the time. Someone says something to us, we've got to say something back. Someone tells us something they're excited about, oh yeah, now I'm going to one-up you and tell you something else. Someone cuts us off when we're driving, we're going to show them, I did this for you and you didn't reciprocate. I sacrificed for you and this is the thanks I get. I can go on. But you know, when we're into paybacks and getting even, the cycle of hostility and violence, it just goes on and on and on. And it consumes more and more people. And human beings, because we are sinful and broken, seem to respond more often with more hostility rather than with reconciliation. But part of what this story shows us is how just one man or woman of God can step into any situation and be an instrument of reconciliation rather than revenge or getting even. I mean, Elijah to this point has been preventing bloodshed by warning his king about the Aramean's plans. And now he moves to get the fighting neighbors to go from hostility to hospitality. So in response to the king's question about killing the soldiers, Elijah says, no, give them a great feast and send them back to their master. Now Elijah's kindness and hospitality here are a direct contrast to the way things are usually done between people who are fighting. But his kindness returns to Aram many men who will testify to the power of Israel's God to protect his people. And Elisha's act here anticipates Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 16 and 38 to 48, when Jesus says, how are you to treat your enemies? Exactly like Elisha does here. And in Romans chapter 12, Paul saying a very similar thing. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. And if they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. I wonder if Paul, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I wonder if Paul had Elijah's story in mind when he thought of that. Well, the Arameans are so overcome by the hospitality of the king and the power of God at work in the prophet Elijah, the story concludes by saying, the Arameans no longer came raiding into Israel. Wow. God's ways are not our ways. 
which is often hard for us to understand and even harder for people to live. But here we are 2,700 years later, still yet to learn the lessons that maybe responding with more violence and more hostility isn't the answer. God's vengeance may take the form of feeding our enemies rather than killing them. There's a comic jumpstart, and in one particular one, a mother and her adult son are having the following conversation. The mother says, don't touch that sweet potato pie. Don't tell me it's for church. It's for Morris, our neighbor. Morris, that horrible old man next door, the guy who who walks his mangy dog on your front lawn and laughs at you, the guy who puts his garbage in your garbage cans late at night, the guy who tells you he hates you to your face. The mom says, son, only love can conquer hate. And the son turns to his wife and asks, where does she come up with this stuff? And she replies, God only knows. (laughs) Today's Bible story begins in hostility and it ends in reconciliation. And thanks to the prayers of a man of God, enemies are reconciled, bloodshed is avoided, and the world is perceived in a new way. The prayers of a person saturated with faith can lead to reconciliation and dignity and a new freedom from fear. If we fight on the world's terms, if we fight on the enemy's terms, we are going to fail. Spiritual vision is necessary so we can see our problems, our challenges, our struggles, even our confrontations through the eyes of God. God's way will be often surprising and not one we would have come up with on our own in terms of how we're going to respond. There may be times, and some of you may be feeling this way this morning, when you feel frightened, outnumbered, and without resources, like Elijah's servant. And this scripture invites you and me to consider how we can be more like Elijah, a person of prayer and faith and courage, a person whose identity is found not in any position or job or role, but found in a relationship with God that nothing and no one and no enemy and no problem can sever. We can live believing that we don't have to be afraid because there are more with us than there are with them. And you can believe with Elijah and the psalmist who said that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. This Bible story from 2 Kings advocates for an alternative way of perceiving reality. It hints at new ways of seeing, new ways of facing our fears, new ways of treating our enemies and solving our conflicts. We live in a world of seemingly impossible possibilities. If your enemy is hungry, don't kill them. Feed them. The story begins in hostility. It ends in hospitality and reconciliation. I want to close with a quote by George Carey when he was Archbishop of Canterbury. He said the following in his speech about the role and responsibility of religion. He said, let us recall some of the fundamentals of Christianity, which go to the very heart of reconciliation. It is posited on a power and a purpose beyond ourselves. The tyranny of me and my perspective is broken. Christianity insists on justice because we have a common creator who loves every person equally. It teaches that we're all fallible 
and in need of God's grace. And this should undermine the pride which makes it difficult to compromise or say sorry. Our God of forgiveness encourages us to forgive those who sin against us. Those are indeed the essential elements of reconciliation. May we be God's ambassadors of reconciliation and hospitality and forgiveness and mercy and grace, just like Elijah. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the example of people of God like Elijah. And we pray, Lord, I especially pray today for anyone who is in the grip of fear, that you would help to loosen fear's grip by sharing your power, your resources, giving us spiritual perception to know that with you there are more with us than there are with them. Help us to know our problems are not insurmountable. Help us to know no matter what has happened in the past, no matter what struggles we have, that forgiveness and grace and mercy and reconciliation and new life and hope and love and even joy are possible when we surrender ourselves to you. God, help us to give ourselves to you afresh that you might captivate us with your love and your presence and transform us in Jesus' name. Amen.